This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic. And this is Matt Pegas. And this is episode 73, I believe. And yep. we are... Uh, 74. 74. 74. Okay, because it was <laughs> yeah. a two-parter, the selective right, reading. Right, right, right. All right. So we are up to 74. And we are uh, you know, very honored to uh, be here with the maximum leader of the worthy house, Charles Haywood, um, who is, um, you know, the worthy house, if uh, you don't know, is a kind of compendium of uh, book reviews, but also articles that you have, you know, uh, written in, you know, on various topics, essays and and such, and uh, where you have also propounded a philosophy or if not philosophy, a certain uh, kind of uh, map toward a post-liberal future called foundationalism, which um, is, you know, a very interesting strategy indeed. And uh, in general, um, I mean, on our side, you're a man who really needs no introduction. So, um, but I've went ahead and introduced you anyway. Good to have you on the pod, Charles. (laughs) shockingly large number of people who have no idea who I am. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, maybe I'll just, you know, by, I mean, yes, that's an introduction, but it might, it might be instructive to kind of get into, I mean, you discussed this a bit with last things, but I, I thought it was neat and I'd want to recap it a bit for our audience. The, sure. uh, the worthy house is a, uh, it's a very like catchy name. It's an interesting name, and um, I believe it's a reference to um, T. E. Lawrence and um, the epigraph from his memoirs uh, or something of that well, nature. Unless, and though uh, actually the original phrase comes from Proverbs, Lawrence stole it from. Oh, there we go. Stole it and modified it for for use in his epigraph. But I took it from his from his epigraph. I actually did not know that it was from Proverbs until someone pointed pointed that out to me. And then I modified the uh, the explanation on my own site, explaining it to make it look like I had always thought that and hmm. known that it was from Proverbs. <laughs> there you what go. is the... We'll keep it a secret. Verse from Proverbs. I mean, I can look I, it up here. But... I would have to go look it up. I, I can't remember. Yeah. Oh, no worries. Yeah. I mean, so just it, it, it is in Proverbs. Uh, I mean, Lawrence, of course, was an educated man, very interesting man, a troubled man, obviously. But mm-hmm. back then, people were able to make references like that and assume that everyone got that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it wasn't like he was trying to rip off Proverbs. He was obviously expected people to to get the reference. Nowadays, they just, just don't do it, including me. 
sadly. So yeah, that, that is the uh, where the reference, the Worthy House comes from. I, I just was looking for a name for the site and I, I couldn't come up with something and I, I had been reading Lawrence's autobiography, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and uh, and well, his you know, somewhat unreliable narrator autobiography, hmm. but nonetheless, an excellent book. And and uh, I was in Key West of all places on a Disney cruise. Uh, this was back when before <laughs> it became completely anathema to all right-thinking people, and uh, and uh, I had I had the thought, so I stuck with that. Interesting. I mean, it's a great name. And uh, LT, last things, made the point that it, uh, this, you know, it was apparently unintentional, but it seems to create a kind of, uh, you know, automatic uh, or intuitive counterpoint to the longhouse. Yes. And I, I really like that because like, well, what's the difference between a longhouse well, uh, you know, uh, the opposite, I suppose, would be a house that is worthy, a house yeah. that elevates that. Um, yeah. So it's. And, you know, and most certainly the worthy house is opposed to the long house. <laughs> it, it certainly fits. The uh, the worthy house has many stories. It is not long. It is tall. It is uh, monumental, shall we say. Yes. Lots of book reviews. Because I like to say the book reviews are tend to be uh, my own thoughts masquerading as book reviews, though I, I do usually, though not 100% of the time, but almost all the time, say quite a bit about the book itself. So they, they do do have a dual purpose. And the reason I, I started doing that, I started writing book reviews because I couldn't remember anything I had read. So I started writing down my thoughts on the books and then that was kind of expanded over time. No, Absolutely. I can certainly uh, vibe with that. Like a lot of writing that I end up doing, at least nonfiction, obviously, is yeah, a book review or, or maybe a, something that I weave together based on multiple things mm -hmm. I read, um, not to sound like a lefty college professor or something. <laughs> um, but I but I do think reading itself can be a creative act. I think that your response to the book, you know, you're always engaged in like a dialectical process of yeah. interpretation, which is creative. And that's where the birth of a lot of great thoughts. Well, I think so, yeah. there's two things that kind of flow from that. First of all, after a while, I stopped doing books that I knew I would hate. As I said, <laughs> just to trash them. Like I'm, I'm not going to read. I don't know. You know, Hunter Biden's autobiography if he has an autobiography, because that just would be a waste of my time. I mean, I, it's amusing to trash books, but it, it's kind mm. of a, a waste of time. There may be rare exceptions to that, but I, I haven't done one of those for for a couple of years. The uh, the last one I did was I think September 2020, and I announced mm. that was my, my last one. And then it also means on the negative side, I think that you tend to kind of yeah, I don't want to repeat myself, so I tend to it, it, the the reviews or the need to do reviews tends to drive the reading selections, which may or may not really be be good because then you're foreclosing some books that maybe you you, you would really want to read or find interesting because you're like well. My readers, if I'm going to review this, don't want to have another another book review about, I don't know, the Peloponnesian War or something. Uh, not that I have any about the Peloponnesian War, but you, you don't want to repeat yourself, either in terms of the substance of the books you're covering mm -hmm. or in the thoughts you have that relate to them. So it does become a little bit of a constraining thing over time. I'm not sure how that's going to develop in the future, but, you know, one step at a time. One of the things I really like about it is that, so like we on New Right we platform authors and creators in the kind of dissident space, the our guys space, whatever you want to call it. But um, that is kind of like, as you say, that's, you know, friendly, 
Um, you know, we certainly don't want to um, be too critical of anyone. And um, as a result, you know, we um, we don't touch upon, you know, mainstream books, really. And mm-hmm. we, um, you know, I mean, sometimes we do. That's not fair to us, Matt. But we, we sometimes <laughs> touch upon. But generally, the people we have on are not, um, you know, our writers from this space. And, um, you know, we are having, a, you know, certain types of conversations with them. And sure. I think there's definitely a, an interest and there's an interest in, you know, for me, you know, certainly in reading your reviews to get a kind of based perspective on literature and, you know, uh, you know, books and what, what have you uh, that, you know, is, you know, not you know, necessarily about cultivating uh, authors from our space, but about applying a kind of critical lens toward books that are, you know, important. And, you know, whether they're, you know, important for good reasons or bad reasons, you seem to now be more tending toward, you know, discussing books that are important for good reasons. Um, you know, it's it's good to have that type of voice uh, out there and that, and that resource, frankly, because I mean, in prepping for this episode, I'm, you know, I, I was familiar with The Worthy House but I did not realize quite so many that you had reviewed quite so many books. <laughs> yes, and it's, it's really uh, quite impressive. I, I have not, I personally have not read that many books over the past two or three years. So mm-hmm. I've slowed down a bit. I think my, my greatest output was like 80 reviews in a year, which was like 2019, but they've also gotten longer and more detailed and more woven mm. into each other. So that's my excuse. I used to do some real, very short reviews and now pretty much they all hover around three to 4,000 words. So, I mean, which comes out in audio to about 25 minutes, which people seem to think is a, is a pretty good length of time. I mean, you don't want to, mm-hmm. there's a couple that go like an hour and a half. Uh, that's probably more than, than most people want. Uh, so I try to avoid that whenever possible. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think this kind of naturally leads itself to the thing I outlined next, which is um, the role that, because so, I mean, obviously... This project, um, I mean, I'm sure it didn't predate your politics, but this is kind of the the first kind of creative project that you you seem to have undertook in this space. Mm-hmm. And so you you must believe, I mean, and stop me if I'm putting words in your mouth, of course, but you must believe that literature plays a role in, um, you know, whatever movement or thing we have here. And, you know, if we're going to call it a, a culture war, um, yeah, I mean, I, I certainly, I certainly, we certainly believe that literature plays an important part in the culture war. So we're wondering mm-hmm. on your thoughts on that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's true at, at a couple levels. I think even before you get to kind of the culture war, the both fiction and nonfiction literature, and this up until very recently, it was universally recognized, but both fiction and nonfiction literature play crucial parts in the formation both of people and of societies. So nonfiction is kind of obvious. You you learn history and political theory and political philosophy and generic philosophy, whatever it, it may be, in a way that's simply impossible possible otherwise. But I think the the thing that people have lost even more than that, if such a thing is possible, as they get their history from chat GPT or whatever, is uh-huh. that the and that my mother used to tell me this when I was a small child, that the, the point of great literature is to is to understand the nature of human beings. Uh, and it, it, that you can only get that through two ways great literature that exemplifies an understanding of how 
human beings are and personal interaction with other human beings. So in a sense, it's even more important now that you, you do reading for that reason, because everyone's online and online interactions are simply not the same thing. And obviously, totally aside from online, many people are alone and don't have any friends, yada, 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 all the problems that people hear about and, and see. So great literature allows people to become fully rounded human beings, but now people do neither. They, they don't get the nonfiction, they don't get the fiction. So it's important for that reason, from a culture war perspective, because being right wing is, is reality has a right wing bias. And so if you read just standard literature that has no political component, you obviously, you just necessarily tend to become more right wing. I mean, this is a universal truth. I'm sure that's probably not true if you read certain, say, early 20th century agitprop, like um, The Grapes of Wrath or something something like that. Mm-hmm. But, but I mean, that's not really great literature. It's like Hemingway. I mean, Hemingway sucks. I mean, he's just awful. It's just, <laughs> it's just, I mean, totally aside from the tendentious, you know, pro-communist propaganda, mm-hmm. he's just not a good writer. Uh, not that I'm a good writer. I'm terrible at writing fiction, but Hemingway just objectively is a bad writer. And uh, so if anybody who reads just a random selection of literature, fiction or nonfiction from the past 500 years or 2000 years, but we, you know, is it widely available literature, say 500 years is whatever past literature is automatically highly likely to move in a right wing direction, which of course is one of the reasons that the people don't, don't want it. Yeah, I, absolutely. At, at the same time, obviously there's a, there's a direct culture war thing that is you have people, you know, like you, you work on this, Passage Press works on this, the idea of bringing out new works that are specifically designed to create a cultural renaissance that has a right-wing drift. And so these things interlock with each other, they kind of dovetail together as a project. I mean, this is a somewhat nascent project and also involves things like art, artistic endeavors and so on. And it's, it's difficult, of course, because there's no money for it. And uh, and so that that's its own set of problems. But uh, I, I'm very encouraged by both of these things, that is people's tendency to focus on older literature and the production of of new literature and art. Yeah, I'm kind of reminded slash inspired in, in what you just said. I, I'm imagining like a bell curve meme a little bit, where I, I agree with your basic point that I think there is what I would call not even necessarily a right wing, but it's, you know, broader, more transcendental of the mere political spectrum, a more like faction of truth element to literature traditionally um i think that i have been thinking about this kind of we were coming off doing this two-part episode on um kosan alamaru's selective breeding and the birth of philosophy which i i wouldn't i, I imagine that could be a, an eventual uh worthy house title yeah no i i have um, a copy obviously but i i haven't got i mean I well the list is I, long <laughs> of course it's always long but i look forward to hearing your thoughts on that one but i think um without rehashing everything from that uh, those two episodes we did, I think that one of the one of the truth pills in that book is about how high culture, philosophy, you know, would extend to literature and fiction as well, is very much the product of um, these kind of more hierarchical societies. It's the product of a luxury class. Yes. Uh, and so I think within that, you know, um, there is this it, it, and even deeper than that, you know, a luxury class founded on, you know, truthful principles which are we could call right wing in the sense that they're censored yes. by the left wing facts of biology etc in Coaston's book he talks about selective breeding we don't need to get down that rabbit hole but it's all part and parcel of this realm of what would now be called right wing thought but i bring up the bell curve meme because i think there's this funny thing where in america especially and maybe in europe as well for the past uh, 100 200 years 
there's a, a drip, there was for a while at least a drip towards kind of associating literature and academia, you know, rightfully so with leftist thought and you have novelists like Hemingway and obviously academia is kind of beyond the pale in terms of how leftist it is. Uh, I, I kind of view that as the, the emergence of, uh, again, not to wax too Bappian, <laughs> but the, the, the province of the kind of striver class of men, you know, stri the striver class of men of letters, shall we say, at some point literature became about sort of staking your, claim and you know you know um yeah, I mean, it's, it's tied at some level to mass mass democracy yeah definitely which again we can be we can have nuanced takes on these things i'm not saying all of it is bad and that you know i i'm well, i think the I, important thing, thing yeah. to remember from the perspective of the project is is that one of the the lies that's kind of a pillar of the modern left project is this idea that clever culturally al courant people artists are inherently left-wing. It's related right. to the myth that uh, the total myth that the boomers created that the younger generation always rebels against the the morals and politics of their parents. Both mm -hmm. those things are objectively, historically, totally false. Historically, your artists typically work for the people who pay them. <laughs> yeah. you know, and when you have a society of, of you know, as you have traditionally, of the ruling class being right wing, the artists are right wing. And not just because they're pleasing their patrons, so there's obviously an element of that. But this idea that somehow artists are inherently subversive and tilted left is just is just historically overtly false. But yet we're told this as as some kind of factoid that's that's obvious. That that's strictly a 20th century phenomenon and based upon the temporary success of the left in the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I think a good for reality. Uh, Go on, Dan. Sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, I was going to say, I think a good kind of heuristic for this is um, artists, you know, generally, I mean, obviously, they, you know, create fictions. But um, regardless, the goal of art is in some sense to convey a, a sort of truth. And as Matt was mentioning, the faction of truth, well, currently, and historically, has been on the right mm -hmm. and yeah so if you are in attempting to convey truth and that is really what art is on you know some deep level certain truths maybe truths that have been suppressed etc cetera, etc cetera. but um yeah that you know goes part and parcel with right-wing thought because yes. i mean the yeah the left is imagining and extrapolating based on those imaginings you know ideals uh, we, we all know what's going on so the you know any return to the classics is a return at you know certainly from the perspective of the current left to uh you know right-wing thought mm -hmm. but i mean uh, truly to some you know form of right-wing thought like even to to go to um anyone pre-war I mean, you're going to find a perspective that, uh, you know, certainly would offend those on the left today and that hues closer to reality than anything you're going to read from a uh, Pulitzer winner uh, or a, uh, you know, a pushcart winner, whatever these, you know, literary prizes are these days. Right. Yeah, I mean, no one who matters pays attention to any of those literary prizes anymore because they're oh, yeah. still silly silly exercises and leftist self-congratulation i mean you know i mean it's like the the oscars the academy awards i mean why mm -hmm. would they want to pay attention to that at all it's just a, and that of course i mean this is a truism or not, true is the wrong word to it is something that many people comment on which is that that gives opportunity 
because when the old ways and modes and orders decay, there's room for people to create substitutes. When the when the if the left hadn't distorted all these things but kept them more mainstream, there would be less opportunity for people on the right. Absolutely. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I, you know, obviously we appreciate, you know, the shout out and obviously the passage prize as well. I do think we're kind of involved in this pro and you are too, of course, Charles and, and, and many people on earth here, this project of kind of trying to recreate, uh, you know, the literature of the faction of truth. Um, I won't take too much credit, uh, not only because there's so many other people involved, but also I still think this thing is very much in its infancy, but, but I, but I like to see where it's going. And uh, I would add like, it's because we are, excluded from you know the the mainstream element of it and, and these various publishing prizes uh, i i think that the strength in that and maybe you kind of articulated this a moment ago the strength in that is that you get people who are writing things um simply because they this sounds a little corny but they're writing things simply because they feel they must you know uh the, the, there's this human drive both in fiction and in nonfiction, to express truth as you understand it in our case it's at a, a great degree of social risk. And at this point, you know, very, very, very little um, monetary gain comes from it. We're kind of all just scrapping along. Um, but but there's a great strength, I think, uh, and a great, you know, it, it puts what you're working on more in line with the truth when you're not doing it to please somebody else. And I think that's yeah, one of the key pieces of the puzzle. And yeah. I think, I mean, historically, the left got traction in the 20th century and late 19th century in, in, in these terms without having a lot of money that is they got money soon enough but it, you know, the fact is that the the starving artist archetype is really one that is derived from leftists starving in the early and mid 20th century before they became the recipients of endless fonts of money i mean yeah there was some you know, rich people who, who would give money but for the most part rich people who are far left tended to give money to politicians you know, like Lenin, for example like famously the russian upper classes gave lots of money to the to the Mensheviks and the Bolsheviks, uh, partially for ideological reasons and partially for basically don't don't eat me if you come to power kind of reasons. But artists typically were not have never been lavishly funded at the early inception of the left. So I don't think right wing people can expect, unfortunately, that you know the teal bucks are going to start flowing down. <laughs> uh, but but nonetheless, you know, I, I also think that modern technology allows distribution and, and so on in a way that wasn't possible in the past, and that's an, that's certainly an advantage. Right. Absolutely. I, I think this kind of brings us to, um, you know, questions of the artistic economy. And uh, to what extent do you think that we should or, um, you know, it is valuable to focus on retrieving and reviving lost classics? So maybe the, the mystery grove model, if you will, versus uh, cultivating new um you know new novels new uh you know uh books and and we'll talk about some of those new books in a little bit but um yeah i mean i think there's kind of there are two things that and what well, i mean really there's everything that the current literary <laughs> landscape is missing but um you know the the true classics of the past are increasingly disfavored or buried and um you know new work new good work cannot take hold so I, I think we kind of have these not exactly competing imperatives, but, uh, you know, hopefully I would say uh, complementary imperatives to preserve the past and, um, you know, cultivate future authors. I think I think that's certainly true. I think the biggest problem on the former, that is the preserving of the past, 
is copyright law because copyright law is so grossly excessively long mm. uh, because Disney bought Congress. It, it, the vast majority of works that I think would be of particular relevance to the present moment are of the relatively recent past. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of great 1800s or 1700s works. It's like Carlyle. Yeah. Everyone says read Carlyle. I've never read any Carlyle. Don't plan to start. Sure, it's great. But uh, I'm not sure that's really, really what's needed. I think there's probably a larger group of things from the 20th century that are important in this moment. And because they tend to be less philosophical and more historically based, as well as based upon the events of the actual 20th century, which has more is more germane to our present moment than, say, the 1700s, whatever some people may say. And the problem is the copyright law is weaponized. You see things in this, things like Camp of the Saints. I have a copy of Camp of the Saints, which I, which I bought uh, it, before books on Amazon in general became very expensive. And before, of course, the copyright system was weaponized against any book that might under, undermine the regime's narrative. And the problem is that if you're a if you're not, not a pop-up, if you're an actual business, you can't be running around violating the copyright laws because they'll use that as a weapon against you. So that means that you only can republish a subset of important past works from not even the recent past, but the, I mean, what's the, it's uh, copyright law is 90 years. Uh, yeah. After, after before the, the 1920s generally. Yeah. So yeah. that that's a big problem. I, I don't really have a solution to that, but what you're going to do. I mean, one of the interesting issues there is I think if you can find estates that have held on to the copyright and never gave it to the publishing company that's very valuable but i mean that's probably few and far between i mean i know the yeah the custom now is like generally for the author to hold the copyright uh but you know i i honestly i'm not familiar with what was customary in the 1930s and 40s and uh, i'm very well it's like be. any personal property. So, but I mean, I think a lot of times you just can't find anybody who it, you know, there's there's been no determination and it's ambiguous. Yeah, and so that that means, of course, that if someone is looking for to create a vector of attack on you, yeah. it's easy for them to say, come up with some relative who you know who's funded to claim that's my copyright, and now you owe me all this money, and so on and so forth. So, it, it, unless the copyright is clear, you can't take that risk, and. So fundamentally, and if it is clear and a book starts getting traction because it's topical, again, like Camp of the Saints, you can be certain that the infinite money given to NGOs or whatever will be used to buy up that copyright. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, as you mentioned, I mean, it should be stressed that copyright law is, uh, you know, vigorously enforced and, uh, you know, federal, uh, you know, in most cases and uh, can be very punitive. So it uh, it definitely discourages uh, infringement from people who who know what they're doing, the type of people who would be able to publish these books because they know that they could wind up being liable for quite a lot of money. And the, so, a well-run copyright system would be absolute 20 years from creation, maybe 15. That's it. But that's not what we have. I mean, so we used to have. That was where copyright started. But yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> hmm. um yeah so i i thought it might be good to um go from here to kind of dig into the artists of and the writers of this scene this kind of emerging right-wing literary scene 
And uh, so I, I specifically uh, read and listened to your uh, reviews of three authors who, uh, well, I was going to say all of whom have been on the pod. That is not true. Uh, uh-huh. Two of them have. The, the last one we hope to have on one day. Uh, and whose, whose novels and books, I think, are emblematic of this emerging movement. So we have Breakfast with the Dirt Cult by Samuel Finley, an excellent novel and uh, memoir of sorts of a soldier's uh, love and life um, in Afghanistan and uh, the United States and Bosnia as well. And uh, Domestic Extremist by Peachy Keenan, a fellow natal conference attendee. Mm-hmm. It's a, uh, a kind of, um, you know, very uh, well-written and um, rousing guide toward, you know, in, in rejecting feminism and embracing uh, a more domestic lifestyle for women. And, you know, and there is good advice in there for men as well. And uh, finally, a, a book that needs no introduction, but uh, that could potentially be said to have, uh, you know, in- injected the vitality into this alternative literature community all by itself, Bronze Age Mindset. Yes. So I've, I mean, I've done reviews of all, all three of those. The, the, the last first, yeah, Bronze Age Mindset, I'm a, a big fan of MAP and in general, I mean, uh, I, I have some quibbles with the what I would generically find <laughs> as the the pagan right, but since my <laughs> basic philosophy is no enemies on the right, and I think there's a lot of virtue there, and plus it's it's just a funny book. Uh, I think my only real comment on Bronze Age mindset, because I assume a lot of people would would uh, are, are familiar with it, <laughs> almost all the viewership. I think I that was five or six years ago, maybe I reviewed it. I think I would probably take a somewhat different take. That is, I think I was somewhat negative about things I would be positive about now. Because mm-hmm. my, my, I, I say on my site that my the shelf life, shelf life of my opinions is three years. So um, I, if it's more than three years uh, previous, that doesn't. I may well have changed my mind on a particular topic. I didn't. I wouldn't change my mind overall because I was overall positive on Bronze Age mindset. But I think I was. Uh, I, you know, I let some normy negativity creep into me in a way that I, I probably wouldn't wouldn't nowadays um certainly the and the other two are, are good examples i think because they're the two halves the same coin they're both anti-feminist one from uh-huh. the female perspective one from the male perspective i mean breakfast with the dirt cult which i always want to call breakfast with the dirt club breakfast <laughs> with the dirt club sorry did i go breakfast with the dirt <laughs> is uh is not really a war memoir i mean the war is kind of backdrop to to the story as you say of the protagonist who's a stand-in for the for the author presumably or obviously though whether it's 100 percent stand-in is is not clear but much of his life is ruined by feminism mm-hmm. uh, and, and and much of the lives of afghans is ruined by feminism as well you know incompetent female pilots shooting children and and, and mm-hmm. what have you and then of course peachy keenan's book which is the most recent of those books is the the i think the one ring to rule them all jeremiah against uh, feminism and all its, uh, you know, uh, what's the uh, phrase, the uh, baptism of phrase, do you reject Satan and all his empty works? And uh-huh. So, you know, the rejection of all the empty works and promises of, uh, of feminism, rather than I think what's been much more common, even among people who are fairly far on the dissent right, well, you know, first wave feminism is okay, but, you know, I don't approve of this this stuff that's happening lately. I mean, you know, feminism from 
the 19th century is an abomination and which should have you know, cut out root and branch. And uh, and you go back even further, you Mary Harrington in her excellent book, uh, Feminism Against Progress, talks about this, how even in the 19th century, uh, the, the model of the domestic relationship between men and women had been mutated by the Industrial Revolution. So you should actually not go back to like Jane Austen land, but but to an earlier model, which, which Harrington talks about at some length. But uh, all those books are, I think, excellent for for the, the purposes of education for the young. And, and that's, I think, the one of the primary goals of, of literature. That is, if you're 15-year-old girl or boy who reads those books, you will be infinitely better off if you just read those three books. You will have learned about all the things that they're going to lie to you about. In fact, if you're going to a government school, have already been lying to you about for 10 years, mm -hmm. but you'll learn that those things are lies in a way that communicates to you that they are lies, as opposed to having you know, somebody yelling at you that they are lies, which, of course, you know, is more effective than people let on, but literature is a more effective way, I think, to communicate that. Yeah. So I, I think we kind of pulled, I think Dan, you probably pulled those out for the outline, partially just because they're people that we've talked to or talked about a lot. But, um, but I also agree with what you were saying, Charles, that those three in particular, I think go really well together as kind of forming a potentially holistic worldview, uh, a truthful one. Um, they all come from slightly different perspectives. Breakfast with the Dirt Cults, obviously a personal narrative. Um, Peachy Keenan and BAP, um, are as different there there are they're <laughs> as different in as many ways as they are similar i would say but both kind of um yeah they're they're two sides of the same coin sort of as you said um just to comment on a few things you said to start with i guess the earliest uh chronologically of those books breakfast with the dirt cult which was written i think in like 2008 or 9 it's it's quite old it's older <laughs> than most of the books it's it's kind of a prehistoric to this scene but also influential upon it um I, I just, yeah, I, I wanted to uh, agree that it's not really, it, it is a war memoir, but it's also not, I, I think that was one of my big takeaways while reading it was, um, I thought it was going to be a sort of modern day uh, Ernst Younger book, which in certain ways it is. And certainly that's one of the things that Bap praised, praised it on when he had Finley on his podcast. Um, but but when, when you get to the end of it, you realize, no, this is actually a sort of coming of age book. And a lot of it's about you know, romance and, and sexuality and, and, you know, the failures thereof, mostly because of feminism. Um, what I was going to say was it's it's more like a Welbeck novel than anyone would realize looking at the cover or just reading the first half. Um, it It's kind of that somewhat sad, but also enlightening look from the inside uh, of the kind of ravages of, of progressive culture um, on, on today's, you know, modern man, shall we say. Um, well, I think... Yeah, go on. Bronze Age mindset. I'll come back to to Finlay's book in a second. I, I I think if someone hasn't read Bronze Age mindset, you have to read it just for his redescription of Mitt Romney as Alcibiades. Absolutely. <laughs> so if if you, if you do nothing else today, you should you should get that book and read that passage. But you should be, read the whole book. But if Finlay's book was writ, was covers early two thousands, right? What two thousand three right. maybe? Um, yeah. And it, one of the interesting things to me about that book is the we now are so used to race relations being poisoned by the left's anti-white hatred. But you see this, and this has always been true to some extent in the military, but you see a a much easier set of race relations than, than you have now. You couldn't even, he describes things in the army, basically. And the line I always remember is that there's two guys in his platoon or his company that are uh, 
one's a Puerto Rican and one's a Mexican migrant to California. And they're always razzing each other. And the, the, the Puerto Rican guy, he quotes him as saying something like, sexy Ricans are head, head and shoulders above you peasant spicks. You know, but like, <laughs> you know, there's, these people were friends with each other, right? And now you can't, you know, all that kind of, you know, what now would be called racism, but really is just a, an acknowledgement of people's, of racial differences and that, that we're all in this together has been totally destroyed uh, by the left, which is really kind of unfortunate, but, you know, again. Absolutely. Yeah, hmm. yeah, yeah. And I was also going to, sorry, I'll, I'll you get back to you in a second, Dan, sorry. I no, was also going to comment um, with Bronze Age Mindset um, for what you were saying about how your interview has uh you you you'd present it differently now um i think i just want to highlight that as an interesting element of bronze age mindset how uh, compared to a lot of other books in the scene i guess samuel finley's book has had a has it had an interesting kind of reemergence too but uh bronze age mindset has really stayed in the conversation now for five years you know five plus years which is pretty amazing and i think um no matter what perspective one originally came to it from i think everyone's perspective on it has has evolved. Um, so that's a testament to its power. I second what you're saying. You know, I I, I wholeheartedly, you know, uh, recommend Bronze Age Mindset to, to literally anyone. Uh, I mean, even, even like normie and liberal friends, it's just an entertaining book. And it's actually quite, I think, fair in the way it presents things. It's not coming with a super strong, well, I, I suppose it, it, it has a point of view that's pretty clear, but uh, it's so learned, I guess, deceptively so, because it's written in Caveman. But like, <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things that if, if you have anyone who's like kind of academically inclined, like that, it's, it's the book I'd point to anyone to understand like this, this scene. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, just, yeah, just it, I, staying power is a very important point. I mean, yeah, know, the it, 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 it is kind of amazing if you think about it, especially because maybe this contributes somewhat to the staying power, but the fact it gets attacked all the time. And and that's something I think that's good for the literature movement in general. These attacks don't really have any effect anymore mm. you know, in any meaningful meaningful way, which I think is certainly a, a step forward. Definitely. I was also going to ask, we can bracket this for later if there's more on you know the more general topic to get into, because I think this is a rather big topic. But I am kind of, because I, I think about this a lot. I've talked about this on this podcast a lot. I'm I'm curious for your take kind of as a Christian, how do you sort of, because obviously Bronze Age mindset is, you know, quasi-pagan. Um, I'm of the opinion that there's a lot of value to offer non-pagan traditions as well. The vitalism is something that I think can be transferred. But I do want to kind of get your general thoughts on, you know, what, and I'm sure you've written about this. There's probably stuff you've said about it that I haven't um, read. No, that's but, okay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like how, how, how Bronze Age mindset can be applied in a more traditionally Judeo-Christian sort of outlook. Yeah, I mean, my my kind of threshold response is that leaving aside whether Christianity uh, has a role in the future society, we'd be hugely better off if we were ruled by a society, a Bronze Age mindset society that that didn't provide any political role for Christians among thing among other reasons because Christians would fundamentally be have much more freedom than they do now I mean you can make counter arguments mm -hmm. to the contrary you can say former pagan societies persecuted Christians but uh, I think in practice that that wouldn't be the case if Bronze Age mindset uh, types came came to power um I I think that that fundamentally and, and the reverse of that is true as well that is a society run by Christians which is certainly the type of society that I favor, as well as a direct political role for Christianity. A society like that 
doesn't need to run around persecuting pagans. The idea of the virtuous pagan is something that has a long standing kind of pedigree in Christianity. Admittedly, most of the time when Christians talk about virtuous pagans, they're talking about people who are <laughs> dead a thousand years before, not the people who were their citizens at the, at the current time. So the actual practice of dealing with virtuous pagans in your midst might be more difficult to administer. But again, because pagans of the Bronze Age mindset type are infinitely preferable in terms of societal corrosion on pretty much on every other metric to modern day leftists, I think that's mm -hmm. a problem that could be relatively easily managed. Yeah. And that's what Bap himself always says. He never, you know, well, he sometimes criticizes Christianity, but he he rejects any sort of group attack on Christians, has many Christian friends. And I'm broadly in agreement with you that there's, I think, a lot of that these people are basically on the same side politically now. And it's not even just like a convenience of the times. I think it actually could be, you know, in perpetuity, there's um, a given, a give and take. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. I think you can have a, if you strip down the size of the federal government, so you had much more subsidiarity and, and, and localism, I think that the, you might have areas that were, pagan areas that were Christian, which sounds kind of silly when you say it, but it is entirely feasible. I think those two types of communities could act together in solidarity within a broader nation, uh, unlike leftists who simply have to be expelled. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, to the extent that, you know, your governing philosophy encourages human flourishing and the flourishing of families um, I mean, obviously, you know, religion isn't important to people, but, um, you know, family formation and healthy living is probably the, the ultimate judge of whether your society is, you know, fruitful or not. Yes. And I mean, I, I think that um, BAP's prescriptions, though, I think they, you know, to some extent should be red tongue in cheek, as you suggested in your uh, review, um, they, you know, would lead to a healthier society, as would a, uh, you know, a society guided by Christian nationalism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, both can, you know, potentially work hand in glove and, and, you know, in fact, to some extent currently are. So the, the proof is in the pudding in, in yes. some sense. Um, I wanted to just go back to uh, what you said initially about your initial reading of uh, Bronze Age Mindset and how, um, you know, you've kind of changed your opinion because I had a similar um, experience in that, I mean, it wasn't exactly that I disagreed with it so much as more, I just, you know, I was not as online. It was like 2018 when I read it. And I was just like, what is this? <laughs> this is really weird. This is really, I'm like, but, you know, it, I think to a certain extent, and I think we all have it in this space right now, but um, if you are a normie, you do need some level of internet education <laughs> to appreciate that Bronze Age mind, because I recently reread it and I realized this is a like tremendously well-written book. This is, you know, a very, you know, on many levels, it, it hits all of these notes and it, you know, it demonstrably is, you know, a, a product of a good author. And I mean, that's something that is maybe not immediately obvious to people who are not very online. Yes. But, um, you know, I, I think it's something that, you know, to the extent it's a um, kind of 
an in not an in joke for us, but it's something that like we can all bond over. Like we all understand why Bronze Age mindset is great. Um, that's kind of that's that proved very useful, I think, because mm-hmm. like across the you know the frog or whatever you want to call it spectrum, we uh, we all kind of understand. Yeah, this this was a really this was a triumph, yeah. and that's like that's a unifying tool. And And as you you know, as Matt says, five years, six years later, it's still very popular. I I don't know what exact sales figures are, but it's certainly something that's a big part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I mean, maybe moving on to um, from, you know, we've discussed these three novels which are emblematic of this, you know, current moment, but uh, the you know, their role and right-wing literature's role in uh, what, uh, you know, we call the the culture war, which, um, you know, recently on your, you know, episode with Last Things, you briefly touched on Curtis Yarvin's Acorns for the Culture War, his prescription of a sort of, um, a, you know, l- not focusing at all on politics huh? or action, but focusing on changing culture through um, kind of, I mean, like, well, to boil it down to something that is, you know, maybe too reductive through parties. Uh, it, um, I mean, what, and so your response to that, if I recall on LT's pod was uh, something to the effect of, yes, that's important. But uh, also, action is important as well. So, yeah, uh, that's, that's that. probably their characterization. Though, though I can't remember. I mean, the that response is conditioned to a certain extent by by Yarvin's overall philosophy, which, while I think Yarvin has done a lot of good work, his relatively recent output typically revolves around uh, variations about nothing matters. And what if it did? And you're you know, a hobbit, not a dark elf like me, who's really mm-hmm. a future ruling class, and <laughs> suspicion that he really wants to be accepted by the present ruling class, thus making himself a a fully <laughs> fledged dark elf. That is, his and his history is terrible. I mean, I have I'm the author. I mean, I've met Yarvin repeatedly times, and and. Yeah, I like him fine, and we travel in the same circles and so on. But I'm the author of what's probably the most trafficked hit piece on Yarvin on my blog, also from like four or five years, where I basically dissect his philosophy. And one of my complaints about Yarvin is he doesn't actually know any history. Um, He says he knows history because he yanks out a bunch of books. But if you you actually ask him historical questions, he doesn't know any history. I mean, he knows a few things about very narrow things that he's dug out to, to wave around. But even though she doesn't actually usually come out with an accurate uh, analysis of. And so he uses that to say, well, you know, nothing is ever going to change unless the people in power decide to change it. And by the way, did you know that uh, communism ended in Eastern Europe because people wanted blue jeans uh, and, you know, which is totally false. And uh, it's just not a very persuasive kind kind of thing. So I I guess that means to reiterate, not to sound like broken record, but sure, like, Parties and culture are, are extremely important. Culture more in the literature sense that we already discussed, but and parties for the sense of like forming a group of people who who know each other, like the NATO conference. But mm-hmm. the those things as an end in themselves are basically a way to diffuse the energy 
that's built up in the in the right wing movement. And um, that's, I think, the potential problem with with that tech. Yeah, I mean, so like, obviously, at many of these parties, I mean, and this is something we've talked about on, on New Right quite a bit. And I mean, I mostly see it as an asset, but I can see how it could be viewed as a liability as well. You have, um, I mean, artists, as as we said, if you're to, to be a good artist, you need freedom, you need to be able to express the truth. And so if the right is the faction of truth, the right is going to attract the artists. So at many of these events and such, you do have like a real kind of like class of artists attending who, um, you know, I don't think are exceptionally right wing, except uh, in believing that not not willing to, you know, countenance obvious lies, right. which, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a start, no, I mean, certainly. I mean, I think the ferment is important. Uh, I, you know, I don't go to parties. I mean, I don't go to these kind of parties and I almost go to no parties if I if I can help it. You know, <laughs> sit on my giant compound oiling my gun. That's what Guardian said. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, but I wonder sometimes if, like, who else is at these parties? Historically, parties with artists that are influential have people from other segments of society. Uh, you have a variety of people. You typically have uh, rich men who are looking to hook up with artsy women while their wives stay home. I'm not encouraging that behavior, but that's just the way, that's just the reality. And so those rich men are influenceable by artists and you have, you have a ferment going on. I get a little bit of impression that there's, that there's all these people are too similar to each other to have a real impact. That's not to say they shouldn't get together and, and, and do things and talk things and create art and so on. But I, I, I wonder whether these things are likely to have a broader societal impact. And, Maybe last February, a, a guy from the Epoch Times contacts me. You know, the Epoch Times, it's the mm-hmm. following gone. Sure. I mean, I, I subscribe. I, I generally support them. I mean, they're always banging on about the Chinese communists because they hate them so much. But uh, <laughs> but he wanted to do an interview, and he did do an interview with me. And, uh, and but it was going to be a point-counterpoint talking about some of these parties in New York that were happening, this whole this whole scene. Now, the article has never come out. I don't know why. Maybe I was just too awesome. But it's <laughs> it, it, the way he described these parties, um, I don't know. I, I wasn't sure that they were going to have, have real impact. But then, you know, I wasn't there. So what do I know? Yeah. No, I mean, fair enough. It, uh, you know, certainly there's, I mean, I'm always kind of naturally suspicious of the idea that, everyone's going to get drunk and have a good time. And this is going to change the trajectory. Of, uh... Yeah, And, and I, I, I keep hearing things, not about the, the New York parties necessarily, but about, shall we say, social events in our general sphere, where, shall we say, various forms of bad behavior are engaged in. This is a mistake. Fan uh, confirm. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I just, it's not just that I don't approve of bad behavior, though I don't approve of bad behavior. It just you know, creates a vector of attack it's not. It's fundamentally unserious. It's one thing to say I'm a, a, a dumbass leftist in the '60s and I take acid and I write about it and isn't this great? I mean, but those people were already being. I mean, those people were tools of the zeitgeist and tools of the powerful, not people who were changing the actual zeitgeist for the most part. And so, for right-wing people to say, "Well, I need to, you know, drop a bunch of acid too, or whatever the bad behavior is," just isn't a productive endeavor. Yeah. And I mean, certainly to some extent is also not right wing. Um, I mean, they're, you know, 
I'm not going to say that experimentation with drugs has an inherent political direction, but to, I mean, to some extent, you know, the loss of personal control, et cetera, et cetera, is, um, you you know. um, Well, I mean, just like anything, being a slave to one's passions is inherently left wing and not right wing. And so when you take drugs or you know, ex- consume alcohol in excess or whatever, you're becoming a slave to your passions. I mean, this, this is not news. I mean, the Greeks could have told you this, you know, to, to, or probably some other peoples even earlier. This is, but this is that's why it's not right wing to to act in a debauched fashion. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I've, I've, Dan and I both have attended some of these, and um, you know, I definitely see the perspective you're coming from uh, with that, and I do think. At the end of the day, if, if it's super druggy, uh, the even if it started with good intentions of sort of being a more youthful, vibrant uh, gathering place for people who've read Bronze Age Mindset, uh, that I, I do think it can go off the rails. But sort of like on, on a more positive note, sort of like we were talking about with the, you know, incipient literary movement of the right earlier, I think this notion of you know social gathering in Los Angeles and New York uh, is still in its incipient stage. I think there there could be some good stuff. I think there is some good stuff that's come out of it. I think it uh, there there is there it continue. It, 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 you know, docs risking aside, um, I still I'm glad that there are these you know principles of social gathering that and it's not just political that it is sort of more of like a more general party atmosphere. Um, I think it could go off the rails. As we said. Oh, I'm generally supportive. Yeah. Absolutely. My, my only yeah. point is that it, 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 you wanted to be productive of things yeah. other than brief euphoria and you know, casual hookups. So, right. you know, they, those things may be productive in a sense, but they're not productive of the larger project. Yeah. And I've seen it go from firsthand experience. I've definitely seen it go both ways. I, I will confirm that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I mean, it, it certainly to the extent that these, you know, gatherings are helping to like foster a community of artists who are, you know, free to express themselves with art that's honest and not, um, you know, paused, then that's like, mm-hmm. I, I think that is a, um, a benefit. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I mean, certainly. It may not be great art, it may, and you don't want it to be explicitly right-wing art in most cases even, right? Because that's just tendentious and tiresome. Yeah. I mean, I think the principal concern here, um, and, you know, the other people have said this before, is always that kind of the uh, the anti-woke normie artists are going to kind of, um, you know, sap the, um, you know, the right wing energy of the the actual, you know, people who started this and they will kind of capitulate to, you know, um get girlfriends or something of that nature, which, uh, you know, is, I think, you know, there is certainly, there's always a risk in any kind of uh, movement and letting in people who, you know, don't share the basic values. Um, that being said, uh, yeah, I mean, there are new things and, yeah. and maybe things aren't even new things. I mean, it's well recognized that you need face-to-face interpersonal relations in order to build any kind of movement. So I'm certainly not down on it. That said, you know, the chance of my accepting invites to parties were any being handed out to me, which they're not, uh, are, uh, though I should probably wangle an invite if I wanted to, uh, uh, you know, I'm just not going to any of these parties, but uh, I, yeah, I'm older too. So, you know, there's that. I mean, fair enough. Yeah. You're, uh, you're mostly missing cheap beers. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, I can just stay home and you know drink cheap beer. <laughs> uh, exactly. I I was very heartened to see that because I knew we had this episode coming up that yesterday on the timeline dropped the trailer for this Civil War movie, <laughs> which I mean, initially I clicked on it. I'm like, A24 is doing a movie about an American Civil War. This is going to be some... Um, you know, some nonsense, I, I assume. And, you know, it seems I was quite right. Uh, they, they, you know, for anyone who's not familiar, are positing a future civil war in America where Washington, D.C. and the federal government is, uh, and, you know, this this seems to be from the trailer what it is. I'm not sure yet. I don't think the details have been explicitly released, but that Washington, D.C. and the federal government is controlled by um white right wing christians probably <laughs> and uh there is a a rebel alliance of california florida and texas who are you know waging a, a war to like take america back so if i mean obviously this is you know um exactly backwards which is you know uh, we're not exactly but in many respects backwards and so this is you know a kind of ham-handed attempt at in my opinion and at you know programming and proper propagandizing that being said um our guys are already kind of like picking out the the kind of like based figures from the uh the government the uh the the government in the good sense the based government based world government and there's this one iconic scene where Jesse Plemons who was one of the um football players from Friday Night Lights is um he has these kind of like rebel journalists uh under uh you know uh guard and he asks them uh are you in no they say that they are americans and he then asks them what type of american are you and that has made the rounds and that's something that like our guys are kind of turning into memes and this kind of like brings up the whole um you know process and the whole history of hollywood producing movies and creating bad guys who later are the most beloved characters and the you know the characters that particularly our guys uh, can relate to and, and champion so I'm, I'm wondering what you think of well number one what do you think of this movie <laughs> number two what you think of this dynamic of hollywood you know attempting to slander our guys but uh actually managing to do quite the opposite yeah i mean obviously obviously seen the trailer and i think this is it, it, i think a couple things first of all I'm reserving judgment on the thing itself in terms of its tack and i'll come back to that uh, the very fact leaving aside the politics of the movie or what it's attempting to portray or what political angle it's trying to portray it, it, it as other people have pointed out it's inconceivable that even five or six years ago a movie like this could have been made i mean everyone mm -hmm. was making zombie movies so at the time and so things uh, the zeitgeist is reflected in the movies that get made like i said i'm reserving judgment on the politics of it i think that yeah, there's some indications in the trailer that it's kind of shit lib, but the the and yeah, you're right that 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 can be repurposed. But fundamentally, movies don't set the cultural tone like they used to, and so you have all these people saying, 
oh, they're going to you know, give $100 million to create this propaganda piece that, that that's part of the plan and predictive programming. I'm like, you know, sometimes there just is no plan. Most of the time there is no plan. And we're in a kind of situation where no doubt this movie isn't going to be like a based right wing fantasy about how how the bad guys get theirs. But the, you know, the these people are are nor do these people typically care that much about making money. That's not what I'm saying, that they're going to make a movie that's uh, out to make money. Uh, that said, I think that the the nature of things has changed so in a way that creates unpredictable outcomes. So movies just aren't as important as they used to be. Monetarily, it's hard for a movie to make more money. The political situation is completely unsettled. So my guess is that the movie is going to come out and be more nuanced in terms of it's the way it, 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 it applies to to everyday politics. It won't map very well at all onto actual politics. And to a certain extent, that's probably a deliberate choice on the part of the filmmakers because you don't want it to map too directly. So yeah, sure, it sounds insane, like California is going <laughs> to team up with Texas. But uh, it, 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 I think that there's a decent chance that the movie will be, will be interesting to watch. Uh, I mean, people don't grasp how bad civil wars are in, in practice. And in, so maybe in that case, it's it's salutary. Um, hmm. Nonetheless, I'm actually interested in in, in watching it because um, it just a it just fascinates me no end. I guess this is my core point. It fascinates me no end that this is something, regardless of what it says or who the villains are, that people now talk openly about. And hmm. you can counter argument that you can say, well, they used to talk about zombies, and the zombies haven't shown up, have they? Which is true enough, I guess. But it, it, it tells what's actually on people's minds, and this kind of idea. You, you would never have had a movie like this in the past. I mean, I think there is a famous movie, Yervin actually talks about it a lot, um, dealing with a fascist U.S. president, some movie from the 1930s or 1940s. So this this stuff, you know, there are, and some amount of civil war or civil conflict. So it's not entirely unprecedented. But of course, the 1930s were also a time when there was a lot of civil unrest and conflict. Maybe that maybe that just proves the point that it, it, these movies reflect the, uh, the reflect the time. Oh, that's, of course, a different question of whether the United States will end up in civil war, um, which I probably have opinions on, too. But uh, but the movie itself, I think, is indicative of the underlying zeitgeist. And that's not really news. Absolutely. I, mean, I think I have a similar take on it uh, to you. I think this movie is inevitable because it, it because this civil war talk and um, fantasy, not necessarily a positive fantasy, but the degree to which we're all we have been thinking about this, you know, on both sides for years, I think makes it inevitable that someone would make the grand, you know, 2020s civil war movie. Uh, what's surprising to me, or not, not that surprising, but uh, I think I'm actually glad to see is that it's A24. Um, credit where credit's due, obviously A24 is another liberal Hollywood company, but I, I do think they tend to make more artistically serious products. And I think what that's probably- Oh, I mean the the Ari Aster movies like Hereditary and uh, Midsummer, and yeah. um, I mean not even the ones I'm I'm vouching for, but like you know they really got on the map with Moonlight, which won the Oscar. You know, uh, LGBTQ movie. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying I like that one, but um, yeah, just A24 is kind of like the the golden child of like indie studios, so okay. so to speak, and they make a lot of yeah more artistically serious types of movies there's probably other great a24 examples i'm not thinking of um dan i don't know if you have any favorite a24 uh, movies but not um, off the top of my head i think those are the like the ones that i associate with a24 that you yeah just mentioned. i mean i'll think of some other ones uh, lots of movies but anyway uh 
Amanda Milius, of all people, kind of has, you know, talked about the modern state of movies and how, like, yeah, it's super woke, but she's kind of pointed to A24 as, like, just kind of the standard bearer in terms of quality, I think. And I think, you know... said anything about the trailer? I'm sure she has. I haven't checked. I can go do so now, but I'm sure she has stuff. And uh, Milius is an interesting person to bring up because another example of movies... I actually haven't seen this movie. It's kind of blasphemous that I haven't perhaps, or, or silly that I'm bringing it up because I haven't, but Red Dawn, which of course is a right-wing movie by John Milius. Red Dawn? Oh my gosh. I've never seen off, Red Dawn. It's just podcast, run. I know, it's like one of those things. <laughs> well, I've, I've seen it, so yeah. we got, we're half uh, half Red Dawn here. Well, you guys have both seen it, so am I Am I, I, um, saw, am I wrong, or is that- I saw of... it in the theater. Nice, yeah. Is it, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, is it broad, could it broadly be compared to what the Civil War movie looks like? It's like, yeah, oh, like sure. a kind of- you sure. know re- it's a serious it's civil war but broadly yeah like a, a look at actual current events something that was very much in the zeitgeist and and um being willing to go there in terms of trying to show what that would actually look like uh, <laughs> i view it as part of that tradition and i think it's interesting mm-hmm. I, yeah I, I agree with your point i think it, it's not going to be a right-wing movie but it may not be as like left-wing as would meet the eye i think it's more it's going to be revealing of kind of what's on people's minds and uh, yeah do you think you know obviously if there was a civil war it would probably be california against texas and florida more so than siding so obviously they're purposely diverging from reality it's just uh, yeah i think there's this um inherent drive to express something that's so much in the zeitgeist i think it will be revelatory when it comes out yeah i I mean i i'm not a military guy i don't have any you know insights into it but it 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 doesn't the the trailer doesn't seem to depict the, the way an actual war would go i mean actual war would be cutting off the infrastructure and supplies to cities uh, rather than you know, moving cross country to, to grab Washington kind of thing. I mean, it doesn't matter. Yeah. This isn't 1945, right? Uh, but, uh, but you know, again, it's a movie, so we'll see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, and the other thing I was going to say, I'm almost, I've, I've talked to, you know, some would-be movie makers on, on their right word side of things, and I'm almost glad that's going to be made from a slightly more left-wing perspective, because I think, you know, I've heard people talk like, got to make the new version of uh, Red Dawn in this. And I think, and if it was made by a lot, and I'm not even trying to, to dis, I'm, I'm glad that Ben Shapiro is making movies, honestly, even though a lot of them look bad. I'm glad that's happening. <laughs> but I do think the, whatever his company's uh, is called, version of the movie would do more harm than good. <laughs> if it was like uh, <laughs> the righteous right wing takeover. No, I'd rather actually see the other side's version, at least first. Yeah, yeah, right. People who are interested in civil war and are preparing for civil war or buying guns or whatever. I mean, they're going to do that regardless of what the movies movies say. Ben Shapiro's movie, A24's movie, you know, people who are in that mindset are going to do what they're going to do. Whether that's a wise idea is a different question. But uh, I mean, obviously, buying some amount of guns is always a wise idea. But you know, do, you, do you have to have the 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 night vision gear and all this other stuff that people buy well maybe you do probably not you'll probably die with it in your closet but uh you know those people aren't focused on the movies mm-hmm. absolutely and i mean i think uh you know a point that i mentioned toward the end our guys repurposing stuff anyways that is uh you know i think very you know regardless of what perspective this comes from the idea that they have imagined a sort of kind of, I mean, essentially the presidency, I mean, I don't want to analyze too much or presume too much, but it, they seem to imagine a a Trump that gets reelected and never leaves and becomes a dictator. And to the extent that we have 
you know, a vision of a a Trumpist army or something. That is, you know, something that, you know, obviously they mean to be, you know, uh, terrifying and derogatory. But, uh, you know, once again, they've, you know, it's it's not for nothing, I think, that people online are you don't see the left memeing their own creations because they're, as you say, they're, you know, not rooted in reality they're not true they're not vital um but you know even when the you know the left mistakenly or inadvertently uh creates a compelling vision of a a right-wing character it just resonates so strongly and i mean i think that you know that not only is a sort of um sign of good health for whatever it is we're doing but also um, a sign of, you know, potential, um, you know, future interest in an emerging right wing film and media ecosystem that is you know, truly artistic and not not to disparage um, Shapiro and, you know, his his movies. But um, and, you know, but, you know, movies that truly do place the art first and the politics second. Yeah, I, I think that's definitely right. Um, well, maybe to, um, move on from that to, uh, back to, or back to, I think, well, maybe we discussed this offline before the episode started, but we both attended the natal conference, which, uh, was, you know, very, uh, very well done. It, um, you know, was organized in part by one of the founders of the exit group, which is, you know, a, uh, a group that many people on our side are familiar with, that uh, helps men find um, uh, develop skills and and careers outside of the um, corporate uh, global homo system, and um, you know that so very good you know very good organizers there, and a it was a conference devoted to the um, falling a, a raising awareness about the falling fertility rate in developed countries. And the, you know, the various policy reasons that have caused it and the policies that can reverse it. And uh, yeah, I mean, it just it was great to run into you and so many others there. And um, what, what I was struck by was that this is a this was a gathering at, you know, in in Austin, a major city at a, a, you know, hotel that is, you know, top of the line. And um, it, you know, was marked a, a sort of maybe shift in the Overton window to have, uh, and it, perhaps it shouldn't be, perhaps the Overton w- window had shifted too hard to the left because these concepts, like you would think that declining fertility, you know, health problems, you know, fall in, you know, family formation and depression, you would think that these issues would be almost apolitical, that everyone would be like, oh, God, we got to fix this. But Elon Musk, uh, Elon Musk didn't show up, even though presumably he was up the road doing his Cybertruck reveal. This was a couple, a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> yeah, I think the most interesting thing to me, kind of politically about it, I and mean, otherwise it was a big success, it was very well attended and so on and so forth. And as you say, it had a very kind of high-end professional place and presentation. The, the, 
there was more of a gap, I think, politically or at least policy-wise among the attendees than is common at what might be coded as right-wing events. Because you basically had people who thought most of the problems to the natal bust revolved around, for lack of a better term, a traditional responses. You also have a very large group of people who might be called futurists or transhumanists who are like, well, we need to have gene editing and artificial wombs and so on. I mean, I fall squarely in the former camp. The the, the artificial wombs are a classic example there. There will never be any artificial wombs because the, this idea that somehow like, well, we're kind of doing it in pigs. You know, no one seems to understand that a human baby is bathed for nine months in a unbelievably complex set of proteins and hormones, which no one knows anything about. And if you stick a baby in an artificial womb that doesn't have those things, it's not going to be real good at the end. I mean, no one yeah. seems to understand this. So the futurists are all you know full of crap. But nonetheless, they were all there. We're all talking to each other in a, in a, in a generally civil way and so on. And I think that's a very important accomplishment rather than just have a bunch of people who already agree with each other on all the major points. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I certainly to kind of recognize the same problem and be confronted with people who have um, uh, solutions that are incredible and, you know, uh, would be, you know, uh, more deleterious than positive uh, that, you know, that provides a kind of a teaching moment. And I mean, one of the things that I did notice, and I think, um, God, I'm, um, I'm, blanking on her name. I think it was Diana Fleischman. She uh, afterwards uh, tweeted that she, you know, is not right wing necessarily, but she, um, you know, found all of the attendees to be like, you know, very affable and, you know, um, friendly to women in a way that she didn't experience at liberal or left wing conferences. And Yeah, that, um, you know, I I thought that was, you know, if if anything is a sign of a kind of like, um, you know, a bridge being uh, gapped, you know, perhaps that's totally. I mean, her speech was very interesting. I disagreed with the vast majority of it, but it it was very well done. And and that's the kind of things out of which actual progress is made. I mean, we do need Elon Musk to come up and hand out checks to all the attendees and tell them to, you know, go make babies or something. But, uh, but short of that, it's, I I think a significant step forward. Absolutely. Um, The, um, so I I had mentioned in the, uh, the notes that, um, you know, one of the interesting things that I don't think we really touched on that much in the natal conference, but this is a literature podcast (laughs) is uh literature for uh young men and the you know what what is the state of um the literary education of young men i i think matt and i already have a good sense of the answer and you do too and uh what uh, but what should it be what um you know what books should young men be reading well um other than the ones we, we've talked about already, certainly, I, I think that um, the well, I think that the the this is a kind of a controversial point. I think what they call the great books are grossly overrated. Hmm. I don't think they should be reading the great books, the ones that were popular in the mid-century, because most of those are just Enlightenment propaganda of one type or another. Uh, there, there, there's a few things in there that are worth reading, certainly, but the, generally speaking, the great books aren't all that great. And so I think that you should probably have a more curated uh, reading list. I don't have a curated reading list. Because obviously the next question is when Haywood says, 
why don't you have a, well, you should follow the curated reading list. The next question is, can you email that to me? And I do not have a, uh, a curated reading list, but I think that there are, it's relatively easy to find out what current literature is worth reading. I mean, obviously you guys are, are producing a lot of analysis of that. I'm producing analysis of that. You can kind of, modern technology allows people to filter through the chaff pretty easily. I mean, that, the preeminent example of that is Bronze Age mindset. People find their way to it because you're basically it's being recommended by by other people. In terms of uh, older literature, I think it probably depends to a certain extent upon your interests and the things that you're you're good at evaluating. That is, maybe you should take a look at the great books for for a few things here and there. But I don't think, for example, the uh, the average young man gets any benefit whatsoever out of reading the Federalist Papers. That doesn't mean the Federalist Papers is bad, uh, and most of its political philosophy is quite good in a sense, or much of it is. But that just doesn't have any bearing on on today. So I think in many ways you're better off focusing more on classic fiction literature for the same reason I identified earlier, which is it helps you understand what men and women are like and how they should interact. Because the, you look around you and you're like, well, this is not how men and women should act, either individually or with respect to each other, but how should they act? And I think literature and reading pretty much anything. I mean, you can read you know, your depressive Russians, <laughs> Tolstoy, Dostoevsky. I'm sure there's all, I mean, I'm not a literature guy, an expert myself, but there, there are many possibilities there that that, that any competent list of, of important literature from the past several hundred years would enable you to at least give you a starting place. Absolutely. I, I, I think especially, uh, I mean, obviously literature for young men, adolescents, teenagers, but I mean, it, I think it's possibly particularly pernicious, the like children's books and the, uh, <laughs> the m- literature for young adults that, you know, seems now to be, you know, especially, um, you know, driven by these, you know, questions of wokeness and what have you. So in in my estimation, well, I, I re- yeah, I, 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 I grew up reading Chronicles of Narnia and stuff of that nature um you know lord of uh lord of the rings lord of the flies i <laughs> i think it, in general if you kind of stick to um you know stuff that is pre-war or certainly pre-civil rights movement you um you know you're uh, in your advantage you you know certainly have a better chance of the, the literature being uh, morally instructive yeah, I mean, I replaced, or we replaced all of our children's books with books from pre-1960, including like 200 books, copies, different, uh, there's a series called the, by Random House, the Landmark series of history books, mm. 50s and 60s. So we bought all of those, the book prices have gone up. But I will say that even stuff that has a reputation as being based can be completely worthless. So I did a review maybe a year ago of a science fiction book that's very popular among some people, Red Rising. Uh, which I is, saw that, yeah. And so in its trilogy, it was actually a heptology, or was it heptology, hexology, uh, six books, two, two, two trilogies. But it, it comes across as kind of very base, like space Rome. It starts off that way. Uh, you know, it, it has a semi-famous opening line, I would have lived in peace, but my enemies brought me war. But it's a total shit-lib book. Like there's, 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 uh, you know, it's, and that's before you get to all the trannies and homos down the road, you, you get, like, there's all these women in there who are just men 
you know, with with female names and you know different parts. They're just men. There's no actual women anywhere in the book. And they all do, you know, except for there's some women who are more men than the men because they fight better, they rule better. I mean, it's just a completely insane set of propaganda. And the books also go downhill. It's actually the first one is not badly written. So people they're like, well, Red Rising is pretty based because there's lots of fighting and people like, I mean, well, yeah, okay, but the underlying messages are all unbelievably pernicious. So yeah, you know, even stuff that sounds that it should be good frequently isn't good. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think a great measure of whether a book is paused or not is if they have a female character who uh, is very good at fighting and dispatches all the men, then, you know, like, well, you know, that's not uh, that's certainly not true to life. That's not, um, you know, so so what else is going on in this novel? (laughs) But but I only bring it up because this book has a reputation as being right wing. And you see people say that, you know, and that's just like overtly false. People are tricked into into thinking that for a variety of reasons, in part because a lot of young people you know, don't actually think you know, a surprisingly large number of young people think, well, well, of course, women can fight as well as men. You know, they, even people who are not who are right wing, they're like, well, well, because they've grown up on this diet of total lies. You know, they're yeah. they, so i mean and so i think this right-wing men like you know 15 16 like they read this book and never occurs to them that this is just bizarre bizarrely false it's like you know positing people with six arms uh, you know it just it doesn't make any sense at all uh but they, they they don't know that because they you know they're like the archetypal fish that doesn't know it swims in water just believe these ludicrous tropes that have been fed their whole life right and when it's a question of violence and war you know, this is kind of another issue, but when we're sufficiently abstracted, you know, which is a good, I'm not saying it's, obviously it's good that we don't have to fight to survive every day, but when you have a populace that's so abstracted from any any of, of that, you know, basic realities of, of biological and political functioning is that it's founded upon violence and war. Um, once you're abstracted enough from that, you can start to believe all kinds of lies, like that women are as strong as men. And yeah. I think this is a broader issue that even affects people on the right. Uh, interestingly, even within the military, you know, <laughs> you get weird propaganda. So, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I certainly think it's a function of, um, I mean, it's right wing to in a, in a certain sense to, you know, want to defend yourself and to fight. And so to apply that to women is, you know, to kind of place a, a weird kind of uh, sleight of hand where it's like, well, that's that's right wing. She's defending herself. She's fighting. But um, actually, it's, you know, it's subversive because yeah. it's it, well we know why but yeah right <laughs> i mean on that note um that kind of uh i, I don't want to take too much of your time charles well, I, gotta, I gotta go to a uh, to a tedious and tiresome choir concert for my children so <laughs> yeah uh, but uh, yeah, so if you have anything you you want to promote, uh, this this is your time. This is your platform. Uh, <laughs> no, please, I, I write at the Worthy House, theworthyhouse.com, and uh, you know it's all free. I won't ask you to subscribe except to get notifications. And there's lots of stuff on there. You can you know, waste a lot of time. I also do audio and video versions. The video versions are simply audio versions on on video. So like 80% of the consumption is through audio. Uh, somewhat strangely, I, I, like I, I can uh, I listen to podcasts, obviously, but like surprisingly, a large number of people prefer the audio. So all those all those methods of listening and reading are available if you're interested. Excellent. Absolutely. 
to check it out. Check out the Worthy House. There is a a volume of book reviews that you know simply is uh, staggering. I, um, you know, it's impressive that you've managed to tackle all of these books. And I mean, certainly uh, a lot of um, you know potential um, novels and, and books for our guys to learn about and uh, get into. So check it out. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. This was Thank great. Thank you. Great to have you on. Bye.